is my chosen portion. He's my cup. And uh, I know that uh, we've had plenty in these last days just because of the holidays that kind of throws us off our routines and, and sort of messes with our thinking. There's a lot going on, a lot of distractions. But that's a good question for us this morning as we come here together. Is the Lord our chosen portion? Is he our cup? And what does that even mean? So let's, uh, let's just take a moment and pray. Ask the Lord to uh, direct our hearts this morning as we study his word on this first Sunday of 2022. Father, we come before you, your people, your children, uh, the ones that you have saved from death, from eternal death and given eternal life. And we're thankful for that. That alone gives us more than enough reason to sing, to worship you, to praise your name. And yet as we come here this morning, we pray that our praise comes not just from our lips, but from our hearts. Uh, thank you for your patience with us, your understanding. And we thank you for forgiveness, forgiveness for sin. And we thank you that you, because of your Son and your Spirit, have made us holy ones. And sometimes, Lord, we find that hard to believe, that we can be called holy ones. But once again, another reason to praise your name for what you have done, what you are doing in our lives and through us. And so we pray that as we are here this morning, that we would be able to turn our hearts toward you, that we would be able to lift our voices in honor of you in a way that would please you. And we pray that as we study your word, that you would speak to us, that we would have hearts ready to listen to what you have to say to us. So lead us, guide us, direct us, in this time that we have together, Lord, we pray this in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen. Well, as I, I thought of the first Sunday of the year, I was sort of thinking initially that I was going to just do a one-off sermon, just sort of something looking ahead and, and thinking of how, you know, we come to face this new, new year, how we start this new year. Oh, do I need to... You want to see me, I could put it even closer, you could see if I shaved around the edges of my beard and everything else now. There, we're on for the people at Zoom as well. But I didn't know what direction to go other than where we're going or where I plan to go with a series out of the book of Daniel. And it just seemed that that would be a good place to, uh, to, to start the year. And as I continue to read and study and think about what the message was in these first few verses, it just became more and more apparent as the week went on that this was the message for this Sunday. So wake up. This is a good one. <laughs> no, this, this one is, is, is appropriate, very appropriate for where we're at. You might be asking, why Daniel? Why would I... Uh, go to Daniel the first year. Well, the truth be told, I tend to shy away from prophecy, from prophetic books, that sort of thing. Um, not because, uh, not because I don't like prophecy, but more so because of what happens when a lot of people get into prophecy. They like to speculate a lot. They like to use it to sensationalize things, and and it becomes just sort of a something that people look at and wonder about and speculate on, but it's not something they look at as practical. And I like things that are concrete. And I like things that I can say, well, that's what it's saying. This is what it means. This is what we should do. But you know, prophecy is not as far-fetched as we sometimes think it is, as maybe I fear it is sometimes. Every time you go to prophecy and you study it, you, you see things that are for right now, right here, today. And, you know, if we don't want to live the Christian life, that's not what we want to see, and we won't see it at any time. But if we are people who believe that God's word is God's word, and that is, it, Paul says in 2 Timothy, it's, it's for correction, for, for, uh, for teaching. I better read it. 
um, useful for teaching, correction, for instruction, then even as we come to prophecy, part of God's inspired word, we understand that it has something to say to us right here, right now, where we are. And that's kind of neat. And that became even more clear as I went to uh, the book of Daniel and as I started to read through. So we had finished up First Peter, and I thought, we'll go back to the Old Testament. And Daniel sort of was like, oh, this is an easy entry point in terms of uh, pro- the prophets and prophetic books. And, you know, a lot of times as Daniel, he, he interpreted dreams and visions of others. He had dreams and visions himself. He gives the interpretation. And so that's always nice, too. Because I know some people, when it comes to prophecy, they start speculating, and it's like, well, wait a minute, it says right over here, this is what it means. So let's shut down the speculation and read what it says it's saying, and then follow and obey. So as I read and as I studied, I saw this book has everything to do with right here, right now where we're at. This book gives us instruction on how to handle the exact time that we are living in today. And let me ask you, with all that's going on around us, does anyone here think they got it perfect? Does anyone here think, yeah, I nailed this. I understood what was going on, and I made all the right decisions, and I felt just the right way that I should And I understood and I was able to disseminate perfect instruction for all those around me. No. There's been a lot of this going on for years, a couple years now. People trying to understand what is true and what's not true and what, what should we do and how should we, more particularly, as the church, as Jesus Christ church in this world, How should we respond to these things that are going on around us in the way he would want us to? There is a song that I've been listening to over the last couple of weeks. We were going to have it somewhere along the way here, but it, it didn't seem to be. It's all of my tomorrows. You can look it up. But there's one line in it that I was thinking about this morning. It says something about um, the caution of age And the courage of youth, may they not be the things that lead us. We want Christ to lead us. And so often just because of our perspective, where we're at in life, and it's not bad to have courage and youthful courage, and it's not bad to have a cautious maturity. But we don't want those things to be the things that lead us. We want Christ to lead us in what's going on. And we say, especially in the time we're living in today when there's so much confusion about what course to take even for Christians. And yes, Daniel, as you go to this book, he lives under godless governmental authorities. More so than you and I ever will. And as we read and as we study him, he can show us how to move through a situation where we are under godless authorities. Not like Ikea instructions, okay? Not step by step, do this, now do that. Now take this and put this here. That's not what we do when we go to the scriptures. We read them, we see how somebody else walked through it. And what's the primary principle? The primary instruction that we get from a person like Daniel in relationship with God. That's how we handle what's going on. Now we look at certain things he did and we see how God steered him in particular. But we understand that overall, the basic principle that this whole thing is founded on is you, you do life in relationship with God. You handle the good times and the, and the difficult times walking hand in hand with God through every situation of life. 
But the question is, do we have the fortitude to go against the flow? Are we committed enough to go against the momentum of the, math, the masses or the majority? Whether it be outside the church or inside the church. Because rarely do the majority of the people just go automatically to the right thing. And we have a personal, individual responsibility to be seeking the Lord, to be walking in relationship with Him, and not even making decisions based on what we think other good people are saying. You're saying you've complicated things. You've made it worse. But you know, this is where we should live our lives so we live in dependence on Christ, on the Lord. Now we should be able to live in fellowship with other people and encourage one another toward that dependence. But never should we say, listen, I'm going to leave it in their hands to make all the decisions and I'm just going to follow along. There's a danger in that. And the greatest danger is that we're not depending primarily on the Lord. So just shaking things up a little bit. The Lord is the one who is true. He's the one who is truth. And he is the one who is truly essential. There's so much talk about what's essential, right? I put it on the sign out there. What's essential for, for 2022? And I realize I can go in a lot of different directions, but we understand, and the reason we're here this morning is because we understand the Lord is the one who is essential. So let's go and read the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 1, and let's begin to understand a little bit about the setting and how this story unfolds and this is all the background for that prophecy that will come later but there's so much good stuff in this right here let's let's get into it it says in verse one in the third year of the reign of jehoiakim king of judah nebuchadnezzar king of babylon came to jerusalem and he besieged it and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, a false God. He placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, a group that lived in Babylon. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The questions that we start out with are this. Why, what do we do when our leaders despise the Lord, when outside forces make strategic plans to divert us from focusing on the Lord, and even those closest to us devalue our Lord. I got three titles, the, devastate, the devastation of despising the essential, 
the deviation of diluting the essential, and finally, the delusion of devaluing the essential. Now, we start out with this title, The Devastation of Despising the Essential, from verses 1 and 2, where it talks about Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, being taken out by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, it says he besieged Jerusalem, and we think, well, where's the despising there? What's the problem here? It just seems like we've got a couple of innocuous, harmless verses here that talk about how Nebuchadnezzar takes over Jerusalem. And this is usually the point where if we consider, if we don't just rush through those verses and think about the rest of the book, we read that, besiege Jerusalem, we understand what took place there. How a foreign nation comes in and surrounds a city and takes over. We just talked about that, didn't we? A couple weeks ago as we consider what happened in Isaiah's day. When Hezekiah the king stood up to the Assyrians who were coming in to take over Jerusalem. And here it is again. And this is the point in time where we go, why God? I mean, these are your people. This can't be right. How can a foreign nation come in and take over? That's not fair. You said you're a loving God. But then we think a little bit and we go, wait a second. There's been something going on with Israel for a long time. They, they continue to retreat from the Lord. It's kind of like uh, a falling tide, right? You know, the waves come in, and there's some highs, but the highs are never as high as the highs used to be, and the lows are getting lower, and the tide is going out. And really, the tide is going out on Israel's relationship with the Lord. And if you do any reading about this guy, Jehoiakim, you find out his name was Eliakim, actually. And Eliakim, who was named Jehoiakim by... Pharaoh was not a good guy. You see, he was in a different situation from Hezekiah. You remember how we talked about Hezekiah? He had that horrible father, Ahaz. And Ahaz was just the most ungodly guy. But then Hezekiah's mother was daughter of the high priest. And there seemed to be some great influence from grandpa. Let's hear it for grandpas. Yay. And the mom... And Hezekiah grows up, he grows up to be a godly king to get people back on track. He's like a gem of reformation for God's people, cleans up the temple. And so we see there going from evil to good, and it's a wonderful thing. And we compared Hezekiah to who? Remember? Josiah? The boy king, I think he came to rule, he was about 12 years old, and once again, it was this thing where this young guy becomes a reformer, and he must have had some great advisors, and they clean up the temple, they fix the worship system, Israel gets back on track, and Israel becomes a nation that is pleasing God, and guess who Josiah's son is? Jehoiakim. Actually, there were a couple sons, and they must have recognized that Jehoiakim was not fit at all to be the king. Because when Josiah died, he was passed over. They said, not him. We're going with his brother. And his brother reigned for three months before the king of Pharaoh, or the king of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh from Egypt, comes up and he takes over, he takes him out, he takes him into exile, the king, Jehoiakim's brother, and then he sets up Eliakim, actually, gives him the name Jehoiakim, and he becomes the king of Judah for three years. And in those three years, he does a lot of damage. I mean, more damage than you could believe. Uh, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 24, it says uh, of his rule, 
he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. You start to search uh, historical records to find out about this guy. You found he, he lived incestuously. Mother, sister-in-law, things like that. He killed men, violated their wives, took their lands. I mean, this guy was not just forgetting about God. He was intent upon opposing God. And there are things that I don't even want to talk about in here that he did. So thank me for that later. But let's think about this. This guy is horrible. This guy is evil. And Jeremiah was a contemporary prophet of that time. And Jeremiah was receiving prophecy from the Lord, and he was writing it. One of the books was the Lamentations, right? Lamentations, lament, sorrow, mourning. You can understand why Jeremiah was writing this around that time. And if you go to Jeremiah, I think it's 23, you read of how the writings of Jeremiah came before Jehoiakim. And you know what Jehoiakim did? Yeah, read it. Let's read it. And he, he, he read it and he went through and where it said God, he scratched out God's name. And as the person who was reading read the scroll, this parchment, this probably sheepskin, as they read it, they read it, Three, it says three or four columns, he would take his knife and he would cut those columns off and he would toss them into the fire pot. And then he'd read a few more columns and he'd take those and he'd cut them off and he'd throw them into the fire pot. And his response at the end of all of this was, after the scroll was burned, I'm still king. Does that give us a little different perspective on these first two verses? It wasn't just sort of out of nowhere. Babylon comes in and besieges Jerusalem, takes it out of Jehoiakim's hands after only three years. We think, God, when a foreign nation comes in, where is your glory? Where was God's glory? It wasn't in anything that was going on in Israel at that point in time, especially from the perspective of the king. It was just, it was horrible. This man didn't just forget about God. He despised God. And when a foreign nation comes in and overruns the people of God, there is a very good reason for it. They always gave him a very good reason for it. But just because the leaders have despised God, just because they have acted treacherously, it doesn't mean that all have, that all must. We don't have any choice. Our leaders have forgotten about God. We'll just follow in line with them. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that even the excuse that we can use? What can we do? We're living in a godless nation. We can't stay. I mean, our leaders, they're, they're the ones who make the laws. We, we just have to follow along with. Is that our excuse? Or is that a good enough excuse? Does it work? No, it doesn't. We can look at this time period and we could say, what was happening there? What was going on? What should have been going on? And God talks throughout scriptures about the remnant. God always talks about this smaller group a seemingly who who are have a seemingly small impact on what is going on but they're there and they're having an impact that we cannot see and the call goes out as it did in second chronicles 7 verse 14 if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face turn from their wicked ways then 
I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And that's always, that's always God's M.O. He doesn't say, okay, all these sinful people, we need to get them turned around. He goes to his people, the people who claim to be following him. And we always have a responsibility in what's going on around us. And we, we need to be repentant. We need to turn from our sin. We need to acknowledge, as I say, some of the prophets, when they're prophesying, it's like they're owning the sin of the people. And we go, well, they didn't do it. The people did it. They're the prophet. They're the good. But they own it. They recognize their part as a part of the greater society. And they cry out in repentance to God. And that's what we're being called to do in that verse in Second Chronicles. To repent of our sin, to turn back to our God with this promise that God will act. We take that to heart. And we think about where we live and the time that we're in. And sometimes we go, but our situation is different. You know, we think ahead to the greater story of Daniel, and we think, oh, what, you know, Daniel was in exile. Daniel was in a foreign nation. Daniel was, was overseen by a foreign king. There's nothing to say that you or I might not be in that situation someday. But here in these first couple of verses... In these first two verses, this was how it all developed. And we go, that's where we live. We live in a nation whose leaders despise God. They despise his truth. They seem intent upon doing everything that is the opposite of what is good, what is right, and what is true. There's plenty of tyranny, tyranny going on right now. Attacks on truth, the destruction, destruction of our society morally, even through the laws that are passed. We may not think so much about the moral part of things and how they're failing. It might not be as visible, but even we look at the piracy that's going on. The looting and the pillaging of future generations for our luxury today. Just so nothing has to change for us, so we don't have to be uncomfortable. Let's keep making money. Let's destroy this nation. That's what's happening. But what are we called to do? What are we called to do in the face of this? Are we called to attack is this a rallying cry that we all go out of here? Let's march on Ottawa. Are you with me? Get the torches, the pitchforks. Or are we called to stand faithful and true in our relationship with God? Are we called to have an impact on those around us because of our holy, fearless lives? Our willingness to live and speak the truth to those who are around us. You see, we'll look at these guys' testimonies and we see they didn't carry placards. They didn't go on the attack, but they lived their life in an exemplary way. Let's go on. The deviation of diluting the essential. When I say the essential, remember, we're talking about the Lord here. In verses 3 to 5, let's look at them again. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, Nebuchadnezzar commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, after he'd besieged Jerusalem, taken control of Israel, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family, and of the nobility, used without blemish and good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them 
the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them the daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank and they were to be educated for three years. And then at the end, they would stand before the king. Do you see what's going on here? The plan is obvious. Take the best of the nation of Israel and let's influence them for our benefit. Let's take their resources, their intelligence, their youthful energy, and let's harness it. Let's manipulate it so it will work, they will work for us and our pagan purposes. And all of this influence, all of this control, all of this manipulation is symbolized in the receiving of their food. It's part of the program, part of the trick. You know, you look at it, and, and the king says, first of all, the literature and the language. Now, I've tried to assimilate into another culture. And we realized that as we got down there, as we started reading and learning their language, that is where we learn about their culture. That is how we are assimilated. And the guy who is teaching me language, he says, read Don Quixote and you'll understand our culture. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Don Quixote is a crazy guy who goes around attacking windmills and Spanish descent. He's Spanish and that sort of thing. But he says, that is how you learn about... And as we were down there and learning the language... Just the way things were said, we started to understand the culture. And we began to understand our culture too. And just that one word, ambition. Good word or bad word? Ambition. Is it good for somebody to be ambitious? North America it is. Down there it's not. It's a negative word. It's about, you're ambitious? Ambicioso. That's how they use that word. And you start to realize. Now, on the other hand, we can say, well, that's a negative thing because we've got to be hard workers and we've got to be... But on the other hand, socially, those people are so much better than us. You know, it's like you're an ambicioso person. You're just worried about getting for yourself and being selfish. Whereas they would be more interested in interacting with other people and they'll stop work to spend time with somebody. Now, it's not good to be lazy, but you, you see what, what's going on here. In language and literature, and we understood that we would never be a completely part of that culture because we missed out on fairy tales. We weren't there as little kids. And you realize how much of our culture is based on our fairy tales and the things that we learn as children and the way we say things. And I can say things and you'll understand exactly what I mean because they're part of our culture, because they're part of our lore, our fairy tales that we learn when we were kids. And so this is what they were doing. They were saying, okay, give them our literature. Let's start influencing. Let's impact their minds. These guys have energy. They're smart. They come from a, a godly heritage. They have a spiritual foundation. They understand there's a God above and a ground beneath them. That's a big deal today. If you got that figured out, that's a big deal because people don't. People are kind of floating around in the middle and they don't know which ends up. And we don't realize the blessing we have just understanding there is a God in authority over us. Gives us all the stability in the world. As we walk this earth, we understand this earth operates based on his principles. We're way ahead of the curve on everybody else. But these guys were being influenced the opposite way. Okay, we use the, the benefits they have, the foundation they have, but, but now let's 
pull them into our culture. And so they go and they, they learn. They read their literature. They learn their language. They start talking to them and fit into their society. And the symbol of the acceptance of all that is what? Eating the food, the king's table. That was another thing. You want people to accept you in another culture? You sit at their table, you eat their food. You think, well, they're giving me food. I'm benefiting from this. No. When people see you enjoying their food, when you sit at a table with them, it's like you've blessed them. They go, oh, that person is one of us. They've accepted us and our culture, and, and that's what's going on here. That's what's going on, especially because of the fact that the Jews had very strict dietary laws. Dietary laws that were a symbol and a reminder of their allegiance to God, the God who gave them those laws. So you think of that every day as we eat what we eat. We're doing that in recognition, in a symbolic Worship to God, we're doing this for you, God. Not anymore. Now they're in a new land. God wasn't feeding them now. It was Nebuchadnezzar who was feeding them. No time was it ever truer. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Right? There's one of those sayings that we have that's a part of our culture. And we go, that's what's going on here. He's winning them over because somebody who eats at your table, well, they're never going to bite the hand that feeds them. And so he's taking control and they're going along with it. I mean, he's killing them with He's killing their love for the Lord with his kindness. Well, I can understand what they would be thinking at the initial stages of doubt and ethical considerations. We're Jews. We don't eat this food. We eat this food. But you know, God blessed us with this food, so we'll just thank him and go ahead and eat it. Wouldn't that make sense? Haven't you and I done that sometimes? Doesn't that sound like Christmas? God's blessed us with this food. It's not good for me. I shouldn't eat it, but I'm going to go ahead and eat it. I'm not talking about those sort of situations. I'm talking about other situations where we think, boy, this is ethically not right, but God put it here, so I'm going to go ahead with it. I mean, why would God have given me this opportunity unless he expected me to do this thing that I really know I shouldn't do. Never justify anything like that? Yeah, we all have. We all have. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? What were the names of these, these guys? What were the names of all of these Jewish youths who went into exile? Now, I know you're thinking ahead to, yeah, Daniel and his buddies, but no, the other ones. Do we ever hear anything about them? What did they accomplish? Where was their testimony written? How did they honor the Lord? They didn't. We never hear about them. They assimilated, they accepted the ideologies of the Babylonian nation. They blended into the crowd like the rich young ruler we learned about last week, right? He was given this opportunity to show his commitment to the Lord. It wasn't food for him. It was his wealth, right? Give all that you have to the Lord and serve him. And then it's like he 
He, he stepped out from the crowd to ask his question. He was responded to, and then all of a sudden, you see him retreat, and he's never heard of again. Same with these guys. They blend into the crowd. You don't, I mean, that's the thing that, first of all, we think about the four, the four friends. But then you think about, what about all the other guys? Where did they end up? What were they doing? Were some of them... Did some of them make it into leadership? Maybe were some of them some of the guys who were against Daniel later on? We don't know. This is a selective history. God tells a story that shows his glory. I didn't even mean to rhyme that. <laughs> I'm going to start rapping here in a minute. But God tells a story that shows his glory, and there's a lot of not negative parts. I mean, he tells the negative parts. But the parts that are meaningless, they get snipped off. They're in the cutting pile. They're unimportant, just the same way that Jehoiakim cut off pieces in the scroll and threw them in the fire. It's like God's saying, well, I'm not going to tell. I mean, these are people who failed. We don't need to. We only have so much room here in this book. And so we go on. These guys were educated three years. First of all, they were under the reign of a monarch who despised God for three years. And then three years, they're under the education of a ruler who is purposefully trying to manipulate them to leave the Lord behind. Who could resist that? Who indeed, among these, verse 6, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. We don't normally remember their, or their Hebrew names, do we? We know them by their, well, we know them by their, their Babylonian names or by their VeggieTale names, one or the other, whichever comes to mind first anyways. And it says in verse Eight, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And I was thinking about this. It's interesting that they took on Babylonian names, but they would not eat Babylonian food. And you think, aren't names important? The way we identify ourselves? But you know, there was nothing concrete in terms of their names. There was nothing in God's law that said, as far as I remember, you can't change your name. But there was something concrete and definite about the diet in the law. And you know, a lot of times we, we come into these ethical dilemmas and, and we we like to tell we like to we, well let's do a case study and we we develop some ethical dilemma that is like there just seems to be no good way out of it and we go what would we ever do in that situation but you know much more often our situations boil down to something that god gives us is quite concrete you do this, you're with me. You don't do this, you're against me. And as they came into this situation, as they were taken out of their nation, as they were cut loose from all of the, the routines and things that kind of held them on course, it sounds like what we've been going through the past couple of weeks with holidays, right? You get cut loose from your routines and your, the order in your life. And uh, yeah, I always uh, take time to pray here and I do my devotions now. And I, I, well, they were cut loose and they get taken off into this foreign nation and they're in this situation where they're being poked and prodded and pushed into the mold, the Babylonian way of thinking. But it comes before them. There's a, just this concrete decision. 
Am I going to defile myself and eat this food? God has said, don't eat that food. Am I going to eat that food? And you know, the way this is written, well, we see that there were a whole bunch of these youths that never get mentioned that obviously went ahead and ate the food. But as this is written, I wonder if Daniel was the only one who could stand alone in faith, in his faith with God. And the other three guys were kind of grabbed onto his coattails and went along with him. He was, they were his circle of influence. They were his group. Maybe they all bunked together or something like that. And he was the guy who went, we can't do it. We know we're not supposed to do it. God has told us not to do it. It doesn't matter that we're here in Babylon. We're going to stand fast. We're going to hold on. We're not going to give in. And maybe it was because of just Daniel making that decision on his own that these other three guys came on board and said, you're right. Looking over their shoulder at the majority of the people, but when you're, you're right, you reminded us, you prompted us, and we're going to stand with you. And that's a question that we have to ask. Are we somebody who is going to stand alone for the Lord in this world, in this time? Not because of our own strength, but because of our faith in the one who gives us strength. Are we struggling and maybe going to look to somebody who is walking with the Lord in relationship with him and grab on, he, he, he's making the right decision, I'm going to stick with, that's what church is all about, you know. There are times that we come to church and we're ready to, to sing at the top of our lungs and worship God and honor Him and do what's right. We're at the top of our game and there are others who aren't. And there are times when we are the others who aren't. And we need to come into a setting where there are people who are worshiping God and they're at the top of their game, their faith game, they're walking in the spirit and they challenge and encourage us and we go, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride in their wake right now. Let them break the wind for, for me for a while. I'll ride behind them. And I think that's what we have going on here. These guys together decided that God was the one that stood alone, head and shoulders above the rest. He needed to be honored, even at the risk of offending their hosts, even at the risk of getting themselves into trouble. I wonder how Daniel petitioned the chief of the eunuchs. I wonder how he asked him to allow him not to eat, not to defile himself. It's probably pretty gracious. Another thing I think we learn here is when it comes to honoring God, there seems to be a pattern throughout Scripture in different places as I think through this of putting off and then putting on. You know, we often, we think about serving God, we think, wow, what do I need to do? I need to do this, and then this would be a high-level thing, and this would be greater, and this would be, you know, right up to, yeah, where I'm going out, I'm an evangelist on the street corner, and, but as we look at the scriptures, even think of that one passage in Colossians chapter 3, where it talks about putting off, and then putting on. 
In fact, why don't we read a little bit from Colossians chapter 3, where it says, verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And it says in verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And then it goes on in verse 14. It says, And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony in the peace of Christ rule in you. And this idea of putting off, then putting on. You look at Daniel. The major things in his life, what it was at first, while well, we're reading it right now. He said, I will not be distracted. I am putting this away from me. And it's later in the book that we learn about David, Daniel's devotion in prayer, isn't it? How he always went to his home opened the shutters toward Jerusalem and got down and prayed. First the putting off, then the putting on. And we need to recognize this as a part of our devotion to God too. A willingness to put off things that are a distraction to us in our relationship with God. In the details of life, those things might be different there's some obvious things that we should just not have in our lives. But there might be different things, things that are an issue for you that are not for me. And that's where it becomes something that's very important. Or that's when we understand how very important it is that our relationship with God is personal. How's the Spirit of Christ challenging your heart as we study this passage, as we talk about this, it's not all about what I'm saying up here. It's about what God is saying to you in your heart. What are those things that are distracting you that you know get in the way of your relationship with God? What are the influences from society and the culture around you that you let into your life? into your heart. Because it's never just about the food, is it? It's not about the act. It's not just about what we do. The important issue is what's going on in our heart. And you know that. You know what's going on in your heart. You don't have to worry about what other people are thinking about go is going on in your heart. You need to worry about your heart in relationship with God. And he's promised us. He's promised us his spirit. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. His provision of a spirit that comes alongside of us that will convict us. And it says, and you know, we think of conviction of sin as to drive us down, to make us mope. No, it's conviction of sin saying, not that way, this way. This is the way to a joyful, abundant relationship with God. Do we believe it? Sometimes the way I act, I don't. Because I'm not making the right decision. I'm not listening to the prompting of the Spirit. I'm not saying, yeah, I want Christ more. More than I want these things or that things or the other. More than I want what I want. That is the comfort the Spirit brings to us. He says this is the way into a pure, more holy, more perfect relationship with God. Are you willing to do it?
don't let your heart be defiled by the things in this world, the ideologies, the, the offers. Dead to sin, then alive to Christ. Is this the simplicity of an obedient walk for one who is filled with Christ's spirit and ready to live fully for him? Is this what it takes? Is this the first step, the the putting away things that would be distraction so that we can taste and see and know that the Lord is good? That the Lord is not just good, he's better than all of the other good that there is out there. We have to first taste him. We have to first taste him fully. And I I just think of that, tasting fully. And we think about our taste and how it's affected. Do you know they put more sugar in the food, the breakfast cereals in the States than they do in Canada? This is really important. (laughs) This is a good illustration. You know, they, I mean, they're ahead of us. They're way ahead of us in the, the, and the more sugar you put in something, the more you get accustomed to sugar and to really notice the sugar, you've got to put more in. And you get further and further down that road where you're eating more and more of something that's not a good thing. Well, someone I know, someone close to me, cut sugar out of their life. Tried to cut sugar out of it. They weren't, like, pharisaical about it or anything, but it was not going to eat sugar. And now when that person eats anything with sugar in it, I think they enjoy it a lot more. Even a little bit of sugar, because they taste it all. And here we are, spiritually speaking, Looking for sugar in the things of the world. And the more we eat, the more we need. The more we we need, the more it doesn't affect us. We don't get anything out. And we have to keep chasing. Or we can go, wait a minute. I'm going to break this cycle. I'm going to have a fast from the things that are distracting me from that which is good, better, best. I'm going to walk toward the Lord, get the distractions out of the way. I'm going to love Him above all. Lord, help us. Help us to be challenged by this man, Daniel, and by his faith and by how you worked in and through him. Daniel were here, he would probably tell us, it wasn't me, it was God. And Daniel seemed to get a taste for you, Lord, that, that was above all. All else. Even his, his physical needs and that nagging hunger in his gut and his desire, the desire of his eyes. And he just said, no, I, I don't need it. I will not eat his food. I will not eat the wine of this world. I want God more. And we realize, Lord, that's always been the call in every different situation. It has been to want you more whether it be the rich young ruler who didn't want you more than he wanted the wealth, whether it be that woman who anointed your feet, who showed she loved you more than she loved her own, her own pride, her own sense of decency, her, what was acceptable to the people around. She just forgot all about that. Help us to realize the heart decision that we need to make again and again 
and again to love you more. Help us to realize the joy that is involved in that decision. The patience you have with us as we learn those things, as we even act concretely in ways that help that love, the love in our heart grow. Lord, help us to be set apart for you. Help us to set you above everything, everything there is in this world. And pray this in your name, for your sake, for your honor. Amen.